Hello, my name is Jacob, and I'm a Norse pagan, and welcome to episode 55 of the Folk Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about something that it's honestly a surprise we haven't brought up to this point. It's taken us 55 episodes to talk about Celtic paganism, at least in a full episode. And that's mostly because most of the co-hosts here don't have a lot of knowledge about it. We don't want to necessarily talk about something we don't know that much about. But we do have a guest today. Um, his name is Kevin, and he has experience with Celtic paganism. Uh, but really, I'm going to let Kevin speak for himself. Kevin, go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your journey. Hey, uh, all right. I'm Kevin. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert by any means, but uh, yeah, I dabble between Celtic, especially uh, Gaelic and Norse paganism. Um, my background, I was raised agnostic, but uh, was in Boy Scouts at a Catholic troop, so went to mass once a month on camping trips. And uh, it, you know, the, I liked the ritual and I had to pay attention, but um, I decided, I, or I thought I was Catholic, but I turned out I was really into the ritual and the pagan aspects of it. And for 20 years, I was considered myself a pantheist or omni, just, you know, everything is, all gods are one aspect of one, um, just different, you know, facets. And then about a year and a half ago, I doing some deep dives on uh, different pantheons and research of different gods. Um, I came across Jacob's videos and uh, started the deep dive and then all of a sudden realized that, um, yeah, they're unique individuals and not one aspect of the same. And that's me now. Yeah. So it's interesting you brought up the Catholic thing right away because that was actually one of my major talking points I wanted to bring up. Um, because when looking through like, you know, United Kingdoms in general, Irish, Scottish, you know, English subcultures, all these things, so much of it is steeped in uh, Celtic paganism and Anglo-Saxon paganism. Um, because I mean, obviously that's the origin of it all. And especially the Catholic church coming out of the UK is there's so many traditions that are still based on Celtic traditions. And something I obviously noticed coming back from Germany is I'm like looking at all these rituals from the Catholic tradition. I'm like, these are totally pagan rituals that oh, you yeah. swapped out names and gods. Um, and so is there something that you like, you know, kind of the question to build off of that, as far as Celtic traditions go, what did you notice now that you've kind of walked the path a little bit longer that the Catholic church might do similar to pagan traditions specifically? Um, ooh, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I mean, just, well, I mean, the saints, obviously, um, are direct translations to, in order to um, Christianize the population, they took the local gods and just made them saints to try to get people to convert. So, I mean, that's the number of saints that correlate with either gods or goddesses or just heroes of folklore. It's just unbelievable. I mean, especially St. Patrick, there's a lot of people that think that he was, if not a Druid himself, at least he was taught by them and um, came from that background and used Druidic magic in order to perform miracles. So I'm going to toss it off to one of you for a question for him, because I, want to, I don't want to go too down the rabbit hole yet. I feel yeah. like I'm going, to, I'm going to take us down the rabbit hole if I keep talking. Let's get some, let's get some Love basic questions out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it, it is kind of, that's one of the things that I was thinking of, you know, when we were kind of going into this episode uh, as a talking point, as well as 
it is it's interesting to kind of see the influences directly related to that stuff because uh there's another saint and his name escapes me and it's funny because my my mom had a statue of him even though my mom's not catholic by any means but he was a saint that that primarily focused around caring for animals kind of like are you know the disney princess of saints like your snow white of saints and i cannot remember the name of it. saint francis of assisi that's it is yeah there we go dang there's a Catholic school coming through (laughs) (laughs) so if you kind of look at if you look at him you know in some of the stories that's around him he you know a lot of his statues are him with uh, a young like a doe birds you know animals of just the wild of nature and if you kind of sit back there and look at it if you didn't associate that with Say the Catholic Church or a Catholic saint, you'd be like, "That's just a druid." Yeah, that guy's one hundred percent just yeah. a wild druid, you know. And it's so it is, yeah. Very, it's very interesting when you kind of really start to pick out some of those things. You can see like where they were pulling stuff from, or but the potential influences, you know, that say Celtic paganism had on the Catholic Church. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he's a prime example. Um, saint Bridget um, obviously comes yep. from the Celtic goddess. Breached. Uh, yep. I mean, just they just copied and pasted it. They didn't even bother to change pretty much anything. I mean, yeah, if you look historically, that's pretty much what happens, uh, especially with, with Roman Catholics. They did the same thing with all the Roman gods and the minor gods and deities because Christianity at that point was so new that they didn't know what to do. You know, they weren't Judas, uh, they weren't Jews. And all that so they had to come up with their own way of practicing this new faith because it all changed overnight drastically and then with the non-traditional or not roman catholic but the orthodox catholic they are a little bit more organized than you see the roman catholics uh because you know that they learned from the romans um but you can see that you know the different druid priests and throughout history the heroes and all that like saint michael's and all them you can trace back to actual people or heroes uh on the earth because they were once gods are worshiped by gods yeah well back whenever you were uh talking about yourself um you said that you you kind of connect more to like gaelic paganism i didn't realize that that was a thing um because i thought when the gales kind of came up and became their, their own culture group i thought they, they were all um uh, christianized by that point so no not by that point it's okay, i mean so it's it's also a modern i guess term for it but uh the irish and scottish more so than welsh and the continental celts is what i follow but kind of like more like the uh i guess like the more traditional things like the like the picks and i'm trying to remember what the other tribes that there were in britain Oh, don't worry, homie. I got you here. This one is like, I was like, I got this big fat book that has all of the different traditions of Celtic paganism. There are 49, according to this book, different traditions of Celtic paganism, including Alexandrian, Anglo Romanian, Anglo Saxon, Arthurian, uh, Bresnonic, Britannic, Brythonic, Keldonic, Celtic, Druidic. Druidic traditions, dryad, like it goes on and on. And there are so yeah. many, including Pictus, Gaelic. Uh, and I mean, it's it's ridiculous. 
Um, and then, of course, like even Wicca, Wicca's in here because Wicca is actually just really an offshoot of Celtic paganism, which is bizarre. I never really knew that, but it really is just Celtic beliefs kind of taken in a different new age direction. Um, so there's so much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's like if you it's looking at it, like it's kind of funny that you brought up the Wiccan thing because it was something that I had thought of when, you know, we were planning for this episode is that the term uh, like green witch, which is more commonly practiced within Wiccan is kind of stems from being a druid because if you think about it druids are very much you know in tune with nature with plants and animals and things like that and making you know concoctions with you know herbs and salves and stuff like that and that's essentially what a green witch is you know it's just a it's a wiccan modern offshoot of a druid one aspect of being a druid yeah that is there's a depending on the deep dive you want to go into I can talk about druids all day and like how they uh, compare to the Brahmins in Hindu society. It's there's a lot of people that think that um, druid was a caste of society, and so they were the doctors, the herbalists, the the priests, and the the political advisors as well. So they were the highest caste of the society. So one of the things I, uh, again, most of my knowledge from this is actually coming from my recent uh, explorations in Bavaria and Germany, because Bavaria was basically a Celtic region before they actually migrated all the way up to the, uh, the Isles. And so one of the things that was really interesting that I learned is the fact that there was this like council of druids at some point that existed and they were kind of the political center that eventually, I mean, the problem with it was since there was a council they were also easier to target. And so that's actually one of the ways the Druids were removed is they just went to one of their moots or whatever they called them and basically killed them all. Um, yeah. and I, I can't remember if that was the Romans or the, uh, the Catholics. Um, Romans. Romans, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, they basically took out everyone. But the thing that is fascinating about that is that we often look at the, pre, the prehistory world of the Celtics, uh, you know, of, of mainland Europe as kind of this, like, you know, dirt and tents kind of era when it wasn't. I mean, they had organization. They were having these large gatherings of Druids from multiple tribes. I mean, that's not something a, you know, a simple civilization has. And I find that really fascinating. Right. And along with, I mean, they had cities, small cities, but cities, um, trade routes all the way to Phoenicia, you know, so they were, they were advanced society. And a lot of what you hear about them comes from Julius Caesar. So there was quite a bit of propaganda in order to justify his uh, conquests. Oh yeah. I remember like, that was one of the things I was looking into as well. It was just like, I was trying to find some, I really wish I could find like the actual propaganda what was said but a lot of the artwork and things like that um and what julius caesar, caesar said about them was all just to give the public opinion a bad message of them which is really fascinating because we again we see that now anytime yeah. there's an enemy of the state or an enemy that someone wants to take down the first thing you do is you dehumanize them you say oh mm -hmm. these are lesser people and you know that was what was happening with um, basically all the celts at the time yeah i mean he was saying like he said that they they had to be stopped because they performed human sacrifice well, I mean, so did the Romans, so did the Greeks. Everybody did at one point. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely uh, throughout all civilization, there's been some form of human sacrifice yeah. from all, across the country. But uh, like the even the word barbarian, you can trace back to the Romans and the reasons why they called the Celts and the Germanic people uh, barbarians because they didn't understand their language. I mean. Uh, 
I forget the exact Latin word, but it's like a baba, and that's how they kind of emulated how the Ger Germans specifically talked, and that's where we get the root word for barbarian, and that's Julius Caesar's uh, influence because he wanted to demonize them to justify him unjustly going to war because if you look at history, the Romans never sent Julius Caesar to Gaul to conquer it, but he just decided to conquer it to prove a point, to establish his dominance as the big three uh, political people of the time of Rome. Right. So to pull, again, we're, yeah, we, we, we really want to go down rabbit holes today. I love it. Uh, so just to pull it back in a little bit, uh, Kevin, some basic questions for you, because again, this is just you know, things that people in the audience might want to know. And, you know, I actually want to know. So like, as far as like deities, who do you primarily follow within the, the Celtic pantheon? Within the Celtic, uh, yeah. the Dagda is my main guy. Um, he was one of the first ones to uh, reach out to me and really experience him. And yeah, I mean, I, I work with a few others, but it's mostly the Dagda found the dagda oh he gets two pages fancy yeah um so uh how would you compare the experience obviously working with the norse and the celtic side of things do you find them to be drastically different deities or they kind of fit inside the same kind of box in your mind it's tough to say i mean there's some like when you look at them you can say oh well this this one god matches up with this god but when you dig a little deeper it's like all right like the dagda some people say is like Odin because he is the father of the pantheon. Um, but there's not really one father in the Celtic pantheon. Um, but he's also like Thor. He's also like Freyr. So it's, it's a combination of things. And yeah, so it's, they, they line up. Well, they, they don't line up, but they fit together. Let's put it that way. I want to explain this line I just read. The dagger is usually described as wearing a short tunic, which re usually reveals his buttocks. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's a... That Freyer energy. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, there's one story that says that um, he is well endowed enough that they have to, he has to have a cart to carry oh my. himself around on. <laughs> it's like that classic like you need a wheelbarrow to come around the size of the yeah. balls like <laughs> yeah. uh so yeah i mean that's one of the things like you know what i keep on referencing here to the people that obviously this isn't a video um it's there are so many different celtic deities but the thing is like it seems like there's a mix between celtic deities and celtic heroes and a lot of times those lines get blurred a lot more so than even the norse tradition oh yeah definitely i mean especially Kukulin is the prime example of it. Um, he is the son of Lu, who is a god, but with a mortal mother. So it's he's like Hercules, kind of. And uh, he was just, I mean, if you read anything about him, he's a berserker through and through. So Ian, do you want to go, I mean... We might as well pull your your tricks out of the bag. You know, you got the Morrigan stories on your back. What's what's going on there, Ian? Tell us. A yeah. Bit more. So yeah, just to kind of give give you a little background on my experience with the Celtic thing is it wasn't very long. Uh, I would say I was really dabbling with it for about 
year, year and a half, maybe right before I kind of would took the deep dive into Celtic paganism. Um, but as far as deity work, it's been the Morgan primarily. And for those who have had the pleasure of, you know, kind of having any inner inter, uh, any interactions with her, it's it's a lot. It's intense. Um, you know, it's she's very much a a. I feel like if I was to compare her to any of the Norses, like you said, it's, it's it's kind of difficult to kind of pinpoint any one specific match because a lot of there's quite a few Celtic deities that are considered, <clears throat> you know, your triple goddesses or triple gods and stuff like that, and the Morgan being one of them, you know, that's why it's, she's referred to as the Morgan instead of just Morgan or whatever, you know, a single name that she, most other deities might have, but I mean, I've always liked to compare her to, in a way, with Odin as well, but, you know, I would say even Odin and Freyr in a mix with Freya, because she has a lot of that, she's a battlefield god, you know, she has, she uses magic, more of like a practical magic, more so than, say, like, Freya would be with, say, their work and stuff like that, but she's just, she's dark, she's a dark, powerful woman, and it's, it's, I don't know. It's it's a lot. A lot of people that have had interactions with her generally have the same consensus of she could be very possessive or very like she just be a lot, um, you know. And it had drawn me away from Celtic paganism because you know at first I was like, okay, I can kind of compare you to Odin as well in a way, and I just felt drawn to kind of work with her. So that was my first step, and it was a mistake. I should have gone for something or somebody completely different. You know, I feel like out of the group. And yeah, it, it was just too much for my my baby pagan experience. I was just like, no, nah, I'm going to yeah. stick it with the Norse. I feel like there's a few more easier deities I could work with. But yeah, that's just kind of a a basic introduction that I had. And it's funny because she's kind of come back up in my life over the past year. And I've been kind of working with her again a little bit more now that I feel like I have better grasp of being you know pagan overall and a better understanding of her to a degree but you might not like this still... book Ian. like i don't think well, it I... even talks about the morrigan she's not listening to one of the deities uh look under bav yeah so she might have a different name yeah because that's, yeah, yeah, that's I mean, the like, problem with the triple goddess thing yeah. ian you and i like we had discussed morrigan a little bit in the chat um mm-hmm ways back and like my best description of her was like a day drunk psycho cheerleader valkyrie yeah <laughs> yeah exactly oh man it's uh, it, it's it, she's intense man she's yeah. she's a lot to handle and you know it's i'm not surprised that a lot of people have had similar experiences or it's, it's refreshing to know that people who have had that interaction with her and from what I've talked to other people too, like within the community and stuff is, it seems like when men have an interaction with her is when she's, she's more of that, that possessive, uh, you know, intensity. Whereas with women, it's almost more of a judgmental kind of mind state is what I've heard from that. quite a few people. So yeah, she's, she's something, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, again, to reel it back, I feel like I'm just the guy like reeling in the fish right now. Uh, <laughs> I want to toss it back to the two Caleb's uh, gentlemen. Again, this is 
you know, you are probably the best examples of the everyday viewer. Um, you don't know that much about Celtic Mechanism. So what questions do you have for Kevin about either his personal practice or about the fate, like the idea of Celtic Paganism in general, um, that someone, you know, just are just basic questions. You know, I think that would be really good for the audience. Yeah. Um, I'll go first. How did you get first, like, interacted to the Celtic? Did the gods reach out to you first, or did you kind of, like, discover this on your own? Like, how would someone go about getting into Celtic paganism if they wanted to? Okay. Um, well, I guess to answer that, I need to say a little bit more about me. Um, I was in the Army. Um, I received a traumatic brain injury in Afghanistan. 11 years ago and uh since then i've been uh disabled because of that with migraines so in order to figure out a way to like do something productive with my life i started cooking and two years ago i went to scotland for culinary school so while i was there i was doing some research and then all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, I'm a pagan. And then uh, did some meditation and I don't really dream. And then all of a sudden he came at me in a dream. And that was, that was it. So it's, I, I, tr I guess I kind of tried to reach out, but it wasn't until after I had one dream and I did an offering and try to figure out who it was because I wasn't sure who it was at that point. And then it was clear as day it was him. So I've got, uh, I guess I've got two questions. One would be like in the realm of like the beginner stuff. And then another is, I guess, sort of like a callback to like the last section that we did. Um, mm -hmm. But the, uh, like the beginner question I've got is like, how, how do you go about um, trying to connect to them uh, here in the U S um, I guess, would it be like through meditation or do you try to find uh, like places out in nature that uh, you feel connected to those gods? Yeah. I mean, nature is definitely a huge part of it. Um, well, at the risk of going down a giant rabbit hole, um, I can, I consider the Tua de Danon, the Irish uh, gods or family of gods um, to be the Alfar of Norse mythology. So I, I see them like, I see the Alfar as once they were another tribe of gods, like the Aesir and the Vanir, but they were more connected to the earth. So they, they were more localized. They had more interactions with humans. So they might not be as, um like universally powerful but the they are but uh just more localized so that's so i see them it more in nature all right and the um the other question i had was about i can never say the the god's name it's Cernos or uh Krunos, the the horn god karen i've always yeah, I've always been I've always been interested in him, but forgot. I've always I've been meaning to ask Ian this. I always just forget. It. But have either of y'all had any interactions with him or um, anything like that? 
I haven't had a lot of interaction with them. I mean, I just like out in the woods, just feel his presence a bit. But I mean, he, to me, he's very similar to Ool. And um, the fact that like the wild is what he is. And so it's like a combination of Uller and Frere and um, just that untapped primal energy of the deep woods. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I would say as far as any, as far as myself, yeah, I maybe had one interaction, which actually wasn't that long ago, now that I think about it. Um, it was when I had been in West Virginia with Eric and, out in his cabin, and we had actually gone to D of A, um, an offering to Odin, because I, you know, for safe travels and stuff like that. It was also, yeah, it was an offering to Odin and Sleipnir just because I had driven, you know, from New Mexico at the time to Virginia the first time I did it. Um, and yeah, and then we went to West Virginia. And uh, it was interesting because like shortly after that offering, you know, I kind of wandered a bit into those woods and it was very still, very quiet. The moon was was actually very clear and it was still you know, spring was just starting. So there was still some snow, but you know, I saw, I saw a, a horned uh, figure just like kind of very quickly. I thought it was fae in nature. I could tell like, well, I could tell it was fae related, but now that I kind of think about it, I think it potentially would have been him. Cause I kind of got that vibe of very strong nature-esque, you know, but I feel like with my limited practice within the faith because of my initial interaction with the Morgan, I feel like I haven't, yeah, that's really the only experience I've had with him. I feel like he would have been somebody more uh, appropriate to have started with, you know, and feel connected to, but yeah, I've really only had one interaction with him. Clear. Thank you. Um, I wanted, I, I just wanted to ask about that because whenever I know I'm going down a thing, Jacob, <laughs> reel me back in here just a second. I mean, we're at like the 20-minute mark, so I feel like it's it's rabbit hole time. <laughs> yeah. The, the reason I wanted to ask about him like, during this is because early on in like my past starting as a pagan, um, the only guy that I worked with was Thor, but when I would go up to the mountains uh, in the forest um, near where I live here in Tennessee, I, I don't know why, I just kept my mind kept going towards like, I don't know, like the the Saranos or the Horn God. I don't know why, but it was just something like, no, I just want to focus on the Norse for right now. So, but it's been like burning in my head. And I don't know why I just never decided to research or just talk to Ian about it. So, like, maybe, so this is something I'm kind of like putting to words. So, one of my struggles personally with Celtic paganism, I mean, obviously, if anyone has watched my videos, you can look at me for 0.5 seconds and realize I got a crap ton of Irish and Scottish in me. Um, but in my research into Norse paganism and Celtic paganism and Slavic and Germanic, it's, it's so weird because there are things that make them separate, but there's so much that also binds them together. Um, and again, just filming through this book, um, you know, like Yule, like Yule is something that is celebrated by many people in Celtic tradition, uh, but it's something that was brought over to, you know, mainland Scotland, England, and Ireland by the Norse. And there was a huge period, like 300 years, where Scotland was like, both Norse and Celtic and Pict and so much other things all coming together. So there's so much culture mixing among the Celtic and the Norse side. And of course the Norse come from the Germanic and then the Germanic and the Slavic intermingled and that came to the Norse and that came over. And it's like, there's so much to keep track of. 
And I think we find ourselves in this awkward position where it's like, do we have to draw firm lines on the deities we follow? Um, and so I primarily work with Norse deities and I probably will continue to do so, but I struggle personally thinking, is it okay for me to branch out to the Celtic tradition, even though there are so, so many, so many similarities, there's also those differences. So it, it makes my brain hurt. Yeah. I mean, and you think it, the founding of Iceland was not just the Norse, but also Celtic as well. So, I mean, that's, there's so much overlap, especially, yeah, I mean, Scotland, um, I was in Edinburgh for two years and that wasn't really, there wasn't much Norse there, but you go to the Highlands or the Island, the Isles, especially. And I mean, Orkney and Shetland and even the Hebrides were under Norwegian rule up until a few centuries ago. It wasn't until I think the 1400s or 1500s that those islands became part of Scotland and not part of Norway. Yeah, the Shetlands in particular, I mean, Shetland was like the first isles that the uh, the Norse actually invaded, wasn't it? It was like their mm -hmm. staging ground to invade mainland Scotland, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Shetland is closer to mainland Norway than it is to Edinburgh. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of why I'm not surprised that we have so many individuals, like even just within the community, like the Discord community, that either still actively practice Norse paganism as well as Norse paganism or have come from Celtic paganism to Norse paganism. Because if you, yeah, we could look at it, the, the melting pot of, of just various forms of paganism, like you were saying, Jacob, you know, you have Slavic, Norse, Germanic, Celtic, you know, all the variations of, of Celtic, it, it just all melding together because they were all relatively close. I think we forget just how close and as far as, you know, travel time and landmass, those areas aren't quite, you know, as big. Like I think you know, a lot of us think the United States, okay, you know, I have to drive across Texas. It takes me a whole dang day to cross Texas, you know? That 13 hours for me to drive through one side of Texas to the other, I could hit have hit multiple countries, you know, in that area. So I feel like that it's so common to have the blendings together because they were so similar in some aspects that 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 melding pot of of faiths and faiths and and practices were just eventually kind of just I mean, just a you know, melting pot of of things, you know. So like to think of it like a salad, you know, like a salad where yeah. each person can enjoy the individual flavors. You, know, you got a cherry tomato from Bavaria, you got yourself some croutons from Ireland, you know, and it all comes together in a nice, like you know, honey mustard from southern France, you know. What is like with us and food analogies? Or Look, food <laughs> analogies make sense to my hobbit self. <laughs> uh, food, food analogy makes sense to everyone because everyone loves food like, right. there's not a human being that doesn't have a favorite kind of food what's better than those damn stairs nobody likes stairs <laughs> yes all right kevin no, you, have, you have replaced even the, oh, no. <laughs> even the guest is busting your balls oh, yeah. <laughs> which means that that joke does live on through the people that listen oh, yeah. to this podcast the age-old question has been answered now I, I really need to make a t-shirt about that and just to see how many people would buy a t-shirt about Ian's staircase analogy. <laughs> but getting back to it, I mean, it's 
they are so closely related. I mean, look at Tacitus's Germania. Like, there's so many things that he mentions that he attributes to the Germans, the Germanic people, that were clearly Celtic and vice versa. So it's even he was confused as to which was which. Right. Yeah, and I, that's why in my uh, my mature age of 27 and practicing the faith for about six years now, I feel like I've gotten to this n- nice level where I try not to think about hard lines anymore in the sense of like the faith. Like obviously I have my my lines in the sand, but when it comes to the ideas of the faith, like like you said, I mean, it wasn't set in stone 2000 years ago, so it doesn't really need to be set in stone now. Right. At the end of the day, especially in the United States, we are a bunch of mutts from so many different ancestral backgrounds, you know, which means a pagan tradition that we follow is going to be so varied in how much we do. And, you know, and I feel like we can learn from so many different things like Ostara, like an Ostara celebration, you know, is not necessarily Norse. It's kind of Germanic. It's a little bit Celtic, but there's so many ideas put into it. But at the end of the day, we're celebrating spring. And that's what I tend to focus on is why do these events exist? Like, uh, it was Samhain is coming up. It's like October 31st. Like, yes, it's October 31st of Samhain. It's more of a Celtic tradition, but still we had a fall gathering and it was great. And we brought, you know, some Celtic tradition in there. We brought a little bit of Slavic. I mean, shoot, uh, Aaron gave to uh, Velez. And then of course we had the Norse in there as well. So it's just, I've been calling it more in my mind, like Northern traditions, I think is what I've kind of stuck on. You want to make fun of my age, didn't you, Kevin? What's that? You want to make fun of my age, didn't you, Kevin? I saw. I so wanted to all of (laughs) you. No, it, it is, you know, we've kind of brought it up on the last episode we did regarding, you know, books. Um, you know, there's there's so many things that we, there's pieces that are missing from one specific, you know, practice that we can find something that would either most likely fit or would have been so similar by looking at, you know, the, the neighboring culture or the neighboring countries, you know, like, well, Jacob and I, you know, we're reading the misfilled path i'm sure you've already read it completely through but yeah. you know it it helps kind of fit and find those missing pieces or at least allow us to come up with something that could be potentially brand new to us specifically but at least it helps us kind of navigate those those you know those missing pieces well, I mean, shamanism is a great example of that because yeah. any any shamanism that you practice is a patchwork quilt of 20 different shamanic traditions from 20 various, you know, groups around the world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, tr- like the mist-filled path, I, um, I was looking back, I, I had bought that in like a big group of books that I, that one purchase, and it was sitting on my shelf for about a month before I could get to it. And then Jacob mentioned it in a video so i was like all right i guess i gotta read this now <laughs> so it's yeah it's there's so much that like everything you know you read as much as you possibly can and take a bit of here bit from here bit from there and i don't agree with myself 100 percent of the time why should i expect to agree with a book 100 percent of the time and that's Oh, yeah, something thing. I was mentioning to uh, Shirt before we started this, like, again, flipping through this book, which I don't think I called its name out. It's Celtic Myth and Tradition, or Myth and Magic from uh, Eden McCoy, Eden McCoy. And, uh, like, there's, like, a whole section on manifestation and invocation and stuff like that, which, to me, I'm like, eh, I don't really need that. 
I'll flip to the cool start stuff about the gods and like the, you know, the, the festivals and things like that. And, you know, and this is something I actually have coming up. Uh, I'm doing a book review on the, uh, like a series of books I got sent. And one of them is a book of rituals. Um, and something I talked about with Ian is, you know, when reviewing something like that, of course, I'm not going to agree 100% with someone else's ritual practice. Like, right. Why would we, you know, there's, you know, we're all going to practice slightly different, but that doesn't mean we don't respect and honor someone else's traditions or rituals. And there's something we might be able to learn from them. You know, might be able to learn how they do something. I mean, shoot, they, you know, been doing a ritual 20 times for the last 20 years, you know, they might be doing it for a reason. So what can we get from that to help improve our own ritual practice? And I, I think just in general, as pagans, as Norse pagans, as Celtic pagans, the moment we stop looking, looking at the 15% we do differently and the 85% we do similar that's when we're going to find some peace among all the different groups and ideologies out there yeah i think that's uh, a big oh. go ahead ian no so I, I just think that yeah that's a big a big wall that i feel like a lot of people hit is they is that stubbornness to stick to one you know specific like form of teaching and not branch out you know once you find once you hit that that spot of oh we don't have information on this okay cool well i guess i'm just not going to fill that, you know, that void with anything and just, you know, live about my days pretending like I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things that can be frustrating when people can kind of be so set in their ways for something like that and, and refuse to have that additional influence that most likely is going to be helpful to you. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's the, the group of people that think, oh, well, I can only follow this and that's it. Everything else doesn't matter. And then there's the group of people that think everything matters, even if it contradicts itself. It's like, well, what about in the middle? Right. Like it's, you know, <laughs> it, find what works for you and, you know, just go with it. Right. And share it with others and have them share. You know, I think some of the best conversations I've had about this faith is when, you know, it's two people sitting across from each other, sharing their own experiences back and forth. And you actually listen to the other person. I think in our modern era, it's so common to just talk to someone, wait for your turn to talk, and you don't actually listen to what they say. Sorry, what was that? Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> um, so something I actually had written down that I want to make sure we talked about a little bit is the uh, combination of culture tradition and music and art forms coming together, because that's something that uh, this book emphasizes quite a bit is the importance of music. Um, and the I honestly can't remember the name of the deity you follow, but I remember it had a harp involved. Uh, and it's like, music, that's right. Uh and the music is something that, you know, of course, I just basically talked about this in a video is the importance of storytelling. We talked about with Blade and the importance of storytelling is, you know, this, this tradition of orally passing down stories is getting lost. And that's something I, you know, I know with the Celtic tradition is very important as well is, uh, is music. Um, so is there anything uh, you want to add to that conversation of music or storytelling within the, the faith of Celtic paganism? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, just, it is very important. I'm, not musically inclined at all whatsoever um so that's part of it that is just i mean i can appreciate beauty in music but i i'm never really one to be like oh i need to listen to this song or anything like that so i'm i don't i music isn't really my thing even though i like it let's put that <laughs> but i mean it's, yeah it's a. Uh, but yeah it's the it's that tradition. It's the carrying on of 
of tradition and values and just beauty that you can bring tears to people's eyes with just a song. It's great. If I ever tried to convert my mother, I would just be like, I would walk her down the Celtic woman path because she loves like the Celtic woman band. Yeah. Um, and just like Celtic music, she always goes to like Celtic stores and buys all this Celtic stuff. And I would like try to go down that line. I'm like, you, you know, you like that, right? She'd be like, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. You love that music, right? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's all pagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You would kill her on the spot. <laughs> but no, yeah. Uh, just just to add to the music thing, I mean, there's a reason like we, we are drawn to music in general just because of the power we can emotionally feel behind like listening to a piece of music, whether it's from your favorite artist or even like a classical piece from like Mozart or something. There's power in music. And I think that's the one thing the Celts understood better than a lot of cultures is that the there the power behind the music? Yeah. So the, the one of the the big you know differences, very much like what you, we see with the religious practices compared to like say Celtic paganism and Norse paganism, is in the music. So if you have more of a a Norse folk uh, genre of music, it always tends to be very like dark and heavy. I feel like. Um, and then you, you look at more of a Celtic traditional folk music, and it's always very upbeat, very uh, cheerful, you know, very, you know, penny whistles and things like that. And it is interesting to kind of look at that too, but then there are also those similarities. And I think, you know, it, it would be kind of funny and interesting to see if they had the roles had been switched, because I feel like they, very, they fit the environment very well. I feel like when people think of Ireland, they think of, you know, green rolling hills and some of the cliffs and stuff like that. And when you think of Scandinavia, you know, harsh, frozen, you know, fjords. Yeah, fjords yeah. And, and mountains and stuff like that. So it is interesting to kind of look at it and see what potentially could have impacted that music inspiration and stuff like that. Baker's been but, trying to get a word in for like 20 minutes now. It's <laughs> all good. I'm just being patient. <laughs> um, but talking about how important music is to uh, Celtic paganism. I mean, it's a, our ancestors know that it was a very important way of, uh, or a very good way of storytelling because you can put things in a song. I mean, even as far as like keeping traditions alive, you know, especially if it's sang in the old, one of the old languages, like even after the Christians took over, they're not going to know what you're saying. And you could still be passing down the traditions and stories of your ancestors and of the gods to the people around you. And we all know it's like, you know, every one of us here, we, we all listen to Howling, we listen to Wardrun and stuff like that. We know that there can be magic literally in, in song. I know that I know that I feel it whenever I listen to certain Howling songs. And I love it whenever I've got a couple of friends of mine at work that they're interested in stuff like that. And I'm like, you're here. If you like this, listen to this. And I'll have them listen to like um, Helvigan or Alpha Dieter Hytet and things like that. And I was like, so what did you feel? when you heard that and they'll tell me what they felt. And I'm like, well, you pretty much like your soul is literally feeling what the song is about. And I'll tell them what it's about. And it just blows their mind that music actually can have that big of an impact. Yeah. And like you said, with the stories, I mean, it's kids learn songs and that's the, just a great way to pass on knowledge and wisdom and information and everything. 
So are there any book sources? I don't actually know this off the top of my head, like the Poetic and Prose Edda for the Celtic tradition or like, uh, where do they all come there's from? There's a few. Um, if, for the Welsh, there's the Mabinogian. M-A-B-I-G something. That's the thing with Celtic stuff. I never know yeah. how to spell it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then the, in the Irish, don't make sense. yeah, the Irish, there's um, the Book of Invasions and the Ulster Cycle. But it's, it's even more, uh, what's the word? Um, it's more distanced than the prose edda is. Well, yeah, most of it comes from the English writing, like uh, like the, uh, the first kings of England writing stuff down, right? Yeah, um, the that and like Irish monks. Oh, that's um, right. That's right. Put on a lot of stuff. I mean, like the Book of Kells has some stuff in it, um, but the like the the Book of Invasion and the Labor Gabala Aaron is that. Um, there's that. There's the Ulster Cycle. Uh, the one story that deals with more hero is the the cattle raid of Cooley, the Tainbow Cooley, is all about Cucullin. Mm, gotcha. And then uh, isn't like the uh, the Anglo-Saxon like annals or the chronicles or whatever like big in that like at least for the Anglo-Saxon side or is that, am I thinking about something different? I don't know, honestly. Oh my gosh, there's just too much to keep track of. <laughs> yeah, like you said, I mean, luckily with the Norse tradition, and maybe that's why Norse and Germanic paganism is, a, is a, maybe a little bit more popular, is because you can just buy the Poetic Edda and you're pretty much good to go, but it seems like there's a lot more breadcrumb following with the Celtic stuff. Yeah, definitely. And it's, I mean, there was one book that I read not too long ago um, that's really, it's called a, uh, and Caro Gwyn. It's more Wiccan influenced, but it talks about the ancient fairy faith and how throughout the world, like the Fae have always been at the beginning before the different personifications. And that I thought was interesting. This is where we're going to get into some real hippie stuff here. So like yeah. I've experienced the faith a lot more through like Norse paganism specifically through sensations, through sights, through sounds, um, you know, through smells and things like that. Like this time of year really makes me feel connected to the gods, to the faith, everything just because of the smell in the air, the feeling of the air. Like it makes me feel like, you know, there's just magic all around us. And something that's interesting to me. And one of the things I was trying to get at a little bit with the music is the Celtic music to me gets me even more connected than even say the Norse because the Norse like a lot of that is very modern but you know for the most part we can tell the Celtic music is being played with those instruments and stuff is very similar to how it would have been played 600 800 thousand years ago um and something that you know I feel like I've always connected to is things like bagpipes you know bagpipe hearing that and hearing you know seeing scenes of Scotland that immediately invokes something within yourself you know anytime you watch a tv show or like a travel show that you know goes over the UK and things like that they always got to have these like long drawn out drone shots of like the you know the highlands and things like that with the music playing in the background and I really do think that invokes something in your soul um even more so than the Norse tradition uh, at least in my opinion and maybe again, it's that connection to that call back to the aisles because there is a certain weather there. And maybe that's what you're, we're, I'm experiencing here in fall is it feels more like the weather of what my ancestors probably experienced, not this 
horrifically muggy Kentucky summers and stuff like that. Like I didn't experience that. <laughs> oh yeah. There's definitely something with ancestral knowledge and like ingrained on the human psyche of, you know, there's people, if they were, fr- if their ancestors were from the coast, they'll be more connected with the ocean or for me, I'm much more connected to the mountains than the ocean. So it's, that goes all the way back. It's just, it just triggers something in you. I, I agree. I'll just go ahead and throw this in here just because I always try to when it comes to ancestral stuff. But if you've got Scottish or Irish ancestors, trust me, listen to some bagpipe music because I've, <laughs> no, I'm just saying do it because that's how I do. I do a lot of connecting to those ancestors through that that and listening to uh, like Gaelic uh, singing and stuff like that. Absolutely. So I don't know how quite to bring this into like a full conversation, but something I wrote down in my notes I wanted to bring up is I feel like a lot of love for the Celtic traditions for Celtic paganism even comes from the like excitement around Ren fairs in the last 60 years. <laughs> like I'm about to go with my family. Like, again, it's one of those things my mom loves to do. Uh, she wants to go to Ren fairs and things like that. And I enjoy them, but there's so there's always so much Celtic stuff there involved and wrapped around, you know, like the, you know, the jousting and whatnot, but that is such a key component in Renaissance fairs, as much as people want to, you know, go after LARPing and things like that. They're very popular. Um, more popular than I think people give them credit for. I mean, like millions and millions of people every year go to Renaissance Fair in the United States. And I definitely think that helps perpetuate a more Celtic tradition, you know, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I never really went to the Renaissance Fair as a kid or even into my 20s and 30s, but it, whenever it was a Celtic weekend, I always went to those. So I... Yeah, I get it. Yeah, that was even I mean, before. Sorry. No, it's like with with here now that I'm back in Minnesota, kind of going back to the little bit on what you're saying, like the the ancestral part of it. We here in Minneapolis have an Irish festival every year. And it's massive. I've only been to it once, but I'm looking forward to going back again. And yeah, it's it's not quite Ren Fair level. It is and it isn't. I don't know, there's a lot of traditional stuff, but it's more of the the uh, historical um, aspect of it, and less of like a fantasy aspect. I would say because the Ren Fair can be very fantasy related or or influenced, but I don't know. It, it's a lot of it's just, you know, cultural, uh, you know, foods and, and practices, you know, there's like sheep herding, uh, demonstrations and things like that. And it's, I, I, I can see why like the Renaissance fairs would be heavily influenced primarily more by Celtic paganism than anything else is because of how festive I feel like, you know, kind of going back to the music thing, like Celtic music just to me seems very festive and very, you know, uh, happy and and cheerful and stuff like that i mean that's overall the general consensus i feel like when people go to rent fair is that that wonder and like you know fairy folk and etc and whatnot so i have a fun theory you know it's just a theory is why renaissance fairs actually became popular because it became popular right at the late 1950s early 1960s is when they started popping up and 
I really do believe it's because you had so many soldiers coming back from World War II and they got to, they went to Europe and they all attached back to the European soil. And then they came back here with a longing for that. Because before then we didn't really, you know, we were in a period of, you know, getting away from Britain and getting away from our European roots. But then people went back to defend that land. And then they came back with something in them and in, the, in themselves that I think sparked this curiosity once again. But that's just my theory. Makes sense. So Kevin, the last thing we got here in the last 10 minutes, um, we'll let let you go down the the druid rabbit hole for a bit. So um, if you could just like, and briefly, you know, we already mentioned like the green witch thing. Um, What is like druid or druidic practice now, so to speak? It's, it depends on the individual. I mean, it's, there's, it's so far flung. I mean, it's like you, you talked about the different aspects of Odin there's different aspects to druidism as well i mean it's the the herbalism um that's a big thing the just connect the divination there's the just the philosophy side of it there's the um advisor to the the king aspect i mean just um being like this the old wise man or woman um you know it's there's so much to druidry that i don't think there's one answer that works at all so um do you uh, do yourself practice any form of druidry then um in an aspect yeah i mean it's i i tend more towards the philosophy side um just because that's where i feel most comfortable um and being the the teacher and things like that it's i i like to think i have a green thumb and want to at some point um getting to homesteading and all that and grow vegetables and herbs and be self-sufficient but it's right now it's just a matter of learning as much gaining as much wisdom and knowledge as i possibly can until i can do that so that's my that's my path of druidry right now. It's just learning as much as possible. So something that, um, like, you know, I've talked about in the past is, uh, pagan pathways. And obviously like, you know, me, I personally went the more shamanic path and I've always considered druidry to be one of those paths as well. If someone wants to follow them, but it's interesting. Cause I honestly didn't realize there were so many different things that you could attach to with it. Um, so when you say like, you know, you could talk about druidry all day, uh, what, what makes you fascinated by it? Like what really draws your attention to it? I mean, just the fact that we don't know, and there's so many different, there's, there's been so many different um, representations of it, especially in like pop culture and just the, you know, oh, the, the old guy with a beard out in the woods. Yeah, that's part of it, but it's, was it just a job that you could do or was it what you were born into? was it a caste system like the like in hindu society where the the druidic caste was the same as the brahmins and just all the different avenues and and how that teaching has stuck around i mean it's even after the christianization of ireland there was the brehan law that was 
druidic through and through. It was the it was the old laws just with you know few tweaks and there were the hedge schools where the irish especially under the english rule were not allowed to hold schools and teaching so they went out into the woods and so it's that connection there and just the um the continuation of a lot of teaching even if we don't know it yeah, that's what I was going to ask that you mentioned the schools is like uh, what little briefly I've researched. I remember there being like historically uh, Druid schools that different people could go to and learn the different types of Druidry back in the day. I don't, you know, that's all I really know. Yeah, I mean, that's that again is nobody really knows that some people say they went to school for 21 years. Other people say they went to school until they were 21. Um, but even, you know, it was a hierarchy as well. So even after you were done your schooling, you still weren't the arch druid. So they were still always learning, just like life. If I'm not mistaken, I believe there are some schools that are still active today in various parts of the world, including Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. I remember coming across uh, something a while back. It was an article, you know, I'm sure it was one of those like clickbait articles or something like that, but it did have some legitimacy to it, I think. Um, but where there are some of these schools, like these Druid schools that are, are they have been practicing, they have been teaching and still have been functioning throughout all the years. and you know, in kind of secrecy, but now they're, you know, coming back into the light, so to speak. Do you, do you happen to know or have heard of any of those? I don't. I would be a little leery of them simply because of the world we live in today. Like, like you said, clickbaity. Like, oh, yeah, I've learned this ancient wisdom. Right. Yeah. All for the low cost of $300, you know. <laughs> but I mean, there's definitely strains of that wisdom still being taught. I mean, the the areas in like ireland and scotland and even in canada they're still teaching gaelic the galtics they have that traditional teaching it's been christianized but it's still the traditional type of teaching and keeping the language alive and all of that so that's good at least i just remember this question that i forgot about real early on uh, in this episode, but I still want to get it out just for new people because I feel like it could help them as far as like clearing some things up. Um, but I know, like personally, I never knew that much about druids. And I always, I always highly associated with them with this being like a Celtic shaman, and this may just be ha uh, you basically restating some of the things you already have, or basically just saying it again. But what are some like some key differences between like a shaman and a druid? Um, I would say shaman was an aspect of a druid and not all druids, but it was, it was one path within druid, the druid class. And then there were others that just were doctors, physicians. There were others that, you know, just grew lots of green stuff. 
so it's it, it's one aspect of it but not the same thing the way that you describe the druid and this is going to be a little tangent here jacob it because i'm a big game of thrones fan it kind of sounds like the maesters you know because like they had that school and then they had that chain and each mm -hmm. different link on the chain represented the thing that they studied at the school and that's kind of what it sounds like like the old druids were if that makes any sense like for anyone to maybe help make a connection that makes perfect sense yeah <laughs> that's just where my mind was going because like mm -hmm. they had that the maester school and then they would spend their entire young lives there studying to become a maester I'm sure we could have an entire episode comparing, you know, fan I mean, we've talked about in the past is fantasy being related to Norse paganism. I mean, the Celtic tradition probably more so. I mean, you know, Celtic, Anglo-Saxon, Norse, Germanic, all those things influenced Lord of the Rings, which was kind of the catalyst for all modern fantasy and therefore Game of Thrones as well. So, I mean, it, almost all modern fantasy comes directly from the, the northern traditions we've been talking about. Absolutely. Um, gentlemen, we are basically at the end of this episode. Do we have any last minute questions for Kevin before we close out? All right. Well, Kevin, I'll go ahead and toss it off to you. If, um, if you have Instagram and you want people to find you there, go ahead and plug yourself there. Otherwise, just uh, any last minute things. And otherwise, just thank you for being on here. I do not have Instagram or Twitter or anything. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, Our man. <laughs> if you want to find me, join the Discord. That's about it. <laughs> there we go. Good Discord plug. Um, but yeah, other than that, Kevin, it's been a pleasure having you on here. I'm glad we oh, were finally great. able to talk about this. Yeah. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us for episode 55 of the Folk Podcast, where we talked about Celtic paganism with Kevin. If you would like to be on the show, just like Kevin, please send us an email because we're much better at responding to our emails now. It is at thefolkpodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any topics you'd like us to discuss or be on the show, please email us there. Otherwise, thank you so very much for listening. And until the whole... Let's go. Let's go. Go.